HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery. Proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're aiming to release a new episode every week, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme, the borough of Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a wonderful city, and it will bounce back from this pandemic. We as humans are resilient and capable of great change and adaptation. In our cities and our rural areas, it is the fact that we can help our neighbors that is one of our greatest strengths. Even just asking how someone is doing or if they need anything if you're headed to the store can mean a lot. One of the things that has been frustrating me in this pandemic is that when I smile at someone, they can't see it. How do we come up with a new way to share what a smile means? I see you. I recognize you. We are here together. We are human. I was lucky enough to catch Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, on the phone last week. He's a great leader in these uncertain times. Born in Brownsville, he was a police officer in the NYPD before entering politics, and is really the kind of person we need helping navigate through this time. He is an agent and an example of change. In his own life, he lives as an example of the power of change. He was blind in one eye and losing feeling in his hands and feet and was diagnosed with diabetes. As he weighed his options, he settled on trying to change his diet rather than take medicine for the rest of his life. He switched to a plant-based diet, and within weeks, his sight returned and his diabetes was in remission. This is just one story of his personal and professional perseverance. Check it out. My name is Eric Adams. I am the Brooklyn Borough President. I'm in my second term of two four-year terms, and I represent Brooklyn, one of the boroughs in New York City, uh, the largest of our five boroughs, made up of 2.6 million people, 47% of them speak a language other than English at home. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, I think that's an important fact in today's world. 
uh, for us yeah, to so keep, in, keep in mind the, the large immigrant populations uh, and how important they are. Uh, and not just people, you know, there are lots of people who are second and third generation who still speak their, you know, family's language at home. No, that's so true. And, you know, anytime we do something, we should view it through that prism. Oftentimes, uh, we uh, think that this is a, a English speaking country, uh, but in fact, we're not. Uh, the mere fact that we welcome different imp- immigrant groups that welcoming must be in all the different languages and cultures. And that is probably part of the problem we see around healthcare and even the COVID-19 issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, tell me how how are things in Brooklyn? I mean, I was a I was and and still am sort of a Brooklynite for about twenty years. Um, but I now am since since this all started, I've been with family outside the city. Um, but I do still keep an apartment in Brooklyn. So I haven't been in Brooklyn since the beginning of March. How are things How are things going down there? Uh, intense. First, once a Brooklynite, you're always a Brooklynite, so you'll never be able to shake it. You know? But it's extremely intense. And uh, we are uh, in this new norm, a term that we must get used to saying. And there are various aspects of what happened when COVID-19 hit our shores that basically is going to reshape um, how we think, how we operate, and really just how we do business uh, in this country and in, in this city. Uh, New York uh, is the epicenter of the virus, yep. and Brooklyn is the center of that epicenter. Right. Um, how, you know, largest number of deaths. We were the, the first death actually took place here, and it has really... Uh, impacted this entire borough. And if we get it right here because of our diversity, then we can get it right across the entire country. Yeah, I noticed from your Instagram page that you've been doing an incredible amount. I mean, I know you as someone who uh, I don't think slept very much and had an incredible work ethic before COVID-19, but I imagine now that your sleep is probably even less, but it <laughs> seems, seems like you're everywhere with every group that you possibly can be helping at the moment. Yes, and it's it's because something very unique is happening right now, in my opinion, in so many different levels. Um, one of the uh, areas that I think uh, is very important is that life on the ground is different from life 20,000 feet up. You know, a, a war viewed by the Air Force, which is extremely important, it's different from a war viewed by the Marines. Yeah. And I knew at the start of this virus, the pandemic, that I could not remote run my operation. I could not do it behind a computer somewhere in the luxury of an office or at the sterilized environment of my home. I knew that if I said to the a school school crossing guard, the transit employee, the doctors, the nurses, if I told them that I needed you to go out and be on the front line, then I could not be behind the lines. And that is why I really, you know, decided to move my uh, mattress and my clothing here to Borough Hall Mm -hmm. to bunker down and treat this as a command center, but also to hit the streets. 
because people needed to see me not only for the substantive things that we did, but it's symbolism. Yeah. I would walk some places and deliver food in boxes, and they would say, wow, this is the Don Barrow president doing right. this? It just changed the conversation. Yeah, I mean, and does that harken back a little bit to your days on the police force? With, with, without a doubt. Uh, after September 11th, and, and let me tell you, man, after September 11th, I remember going down to Ground Zero and I looked at the buildings. I started the my policing career was down in that area. Mm. And I looked at those buildings. They were gone. Yeah. And the ground was smoldering. Yep. And people were filled with ashes. And and there was this sense of, hey, man, we're not going to get through this. But then on 9-12, teachers went back to school. Retailers opened their stores. And everyday people said, we want to show America and the globe what we're made of. And it was because we saw people actually on the ground. And, and, and I know this is not terrorism, but it's terror. Yep. And people are terrorized, terrorized. And I knew that part of what we had to do was to overcome this physically and emotionally. And a lot of that came from those days back in 9-11. I agree. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been thinking a lot about those days. I was standing on a roof on September 11, 2001 in Brooklyn, mm. and I watched it all go down. And, you know, I lived in the city all throughout that. And it really was, you know, we all had to make it through. And there was a time of grieving. I think that the whole city really grieved. And I feel like that's we're on the cusp of that now. I, th I, I feel like we are at a point with COVID-19 where we at least have a little bit of understanding. We're making great strides in moving towards how to address it and how to track it and how to trace it. And then I think there's going to come a period where we kind of have to be able to move on while also grieving for what was what was lost or what has been lost. Well said. That is well said because of uh, the loss of life, you know, and, uh, a few weeks ago, in one week, I, I lost five uh, friends that were extremely dear to me. Um, one of them was a police officer I trained as a rookie. Uh, and the other was my mentor that talked me into politics. And I just dreaded picking up the phone and listening to seeing that sentence in the morning of, yeah. did you hear? Mm -hmm. We knew we came after. And as, as strong as we are, uh, let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're experiencing PTSD. Yeah. And, you know, part of uh, the physical recovery, I cannot overemphasize that we have to emotionally recover and people need to find self-healing ways. I don't know if it's meditation like I do or yoga or leaning on their spiritual faith, uh, but you, we have to take notice of each other during this time, you, people don't know there's been a substantial number of suicides around COVID-19. Some folks I know personally have taken their lives. And so we have to really have an eye on each other and give each other the support they need. So are there things that you have seen people do that are moving in that positive direction? One of the things that has struck me as I've been out and about and wearing a mask and interacting with people is that, you know, one of the things I remember very clearly after September 11th is that people of different backgrounds, people of different skin colors, people of different, you know, economic status, people smiled at each other. 
And it was really important that we be able to have that kind of moment of acknowledging, I am human, you are human, we're in this together. And so I'm wondering if you've seen that start to come out and what those things are, because we can't smile. I tried to smile at someone the other day, and I realized they couldn't see it. <laughs> so that's well said, because we can't see smiles anymore. But you're, but you're right. And, you know, I, I think that... Uh, there's an, there is an anatomy to tragedies. Uh, and, you know, you start out where your spirit is traumatized and then you sort of normalize and then you start to actually move forward in what I call you actualize the reality that's in front of you. And we're starting to see people uh, now saying, how do I help my neighbor rebuild? Uh, we we started what was called a NYCHA initiative, where we were giving our masks to NYCHA residents uh, several weeks ago, you know, because I knew that NYCHA was ground zero for the pre-existing conditions. Right. That entire initiative of over 25,000 masks, it was sponsored by the Chinese community. Yeah. Although they were going through their own trauma, there were some cases they were actually being physically assaulted. They were losing their business because no one was patronizing them. They reached out to me and they said they want to help. They want to give back. Just that real human spirit. And the Pakistan, Pakistani community, um, during the month of Ramadan, tonight is the last night, they have been traveling around the city um, when, when they break their fast. Instead of uh, breaking their fast with their families, they've been traveling around the city with four food trucks and carts, feeding people outside their community. It's been an amazing response. Uh, Catholic charities, they've, they've given out hundreds of thousands, millions of meals, uh, Campaign Against Hunger, Dr. Melody Samuels and her volunteers. They've reached a three million meal marker. So we're seeing what makes us great, not only as Americans, but really what makes us great as human beings. We're an amazing species when we go inward and decide to give back in a compassionate way. Absolutely. I, 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 you know, the, the fact that we are able to help our neighbors and, and the people can, I think is, is incredible. And so I encourage everybody to, to continue with that. Um, you know, obviously nobody could have predicted this happening. Um, and the job of borough president, uh, you know, is a, is a, a complicated one with a lot of different facets, but I'm curious to know, you know, how has your job changed or has it changed since January? I mean, is the job, aside from you sleeping at City Hall uh, or, or Borough Hall, uh, you know, has the job changed significantly or is it still about the same kind of work? A great question, because the role of Borough President is really a unique role. Uh, in, in many other municipalities, they probably call, call it the county executive. Mm. Outside of our role as a, a, a person uh, that we give out capital dollars to help uh, building projects within the borough, uh, as well as we look over land use uh, issues, we, we have this space where it's you, we have to do whatever our residents need. And that could be any given day. I could be reading to a group of children uh, in a read-along project to support uh, literacy, or I could be inside a courtroom helping someone who was arrested uh, or abused in any way, or I could be in a hospital 
um, helping the patient or advocating for a policy and fighting to get the resources here. So the, the uniqueness of the role is so plentiful. And now you take all of those tasks that we normally have and you now put it on steroids because right. the presence of COVID-19 doesn't mean the dis disappearance of homelessness, of domestic violence, of all of those issues that were here, lack of health care. And so I'm finding that we're, we're just, we just have really supercharged uh, the calls that our office is receiving and the need of services. You know, we have a large number of businesses that close, large number of unemployment. People are dealing with their rent issues. So we are now having to draw on all the experience we had in the previous six years, uh, six and a half, half years, we're now having to utilize all that experience to address these real issues. That it's coming fast and quick in real time. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there are positive changes that will come out of this from people either um, changing their perspective or you know, just from the way that the workplace is going to change? Um, amazing question. You need to get your own uh, talk show because you <laughs> ask some good questions, man. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, that is so important. And that is part of the conversation that I'm going to continue to have. We cannot cycle out of this just to do what we have done. This is not a moment of moving the deck chairs around the Titanic. We have to roll up our sleeves, go down into the hull, and fix the hull. Because our country state and cities have been operating in a dysfunctional manner. And what COVID-19 did, yes, it was a crisis, but it revealed the dysfunctionalities of the inner workings of our cities. It showed how our healthcare system is broken and we have allocated a disproportionate amount of resources to the affluent and not the underserved. It showed the lack of healthy foods um, throughout our entire food network. It has exposed our inability to govern in real time to manage crises. And so now we must take all of these learning experiences and not saying, let's just go back to doing business as usual. We need to reinvent government. Let's be clear. Many of the companies are not going to open, yeah. reopen. Many employees won't come back to their office space. We're seeing that this city can function with people staying at home. But we have to look at how we treated those people we call essential employees mm -hmm. to make sure that they were able to get the basic essentials for their families. So there's a lot of self-evaluation as we move forward and rebuild our city and country. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. 
family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come. I'm glad you mentioned food because I, you know, I think that a lot of things do start from food, and obviously this show is on Heritage Radio Network, which is food focused. Um, I want to talk about you and your path to a plant-based diet um, and diabetes. I know some other people who were diabetic and who've done, you know, a similar thing to what has happened with you and really turned their health around with serious diet changes. So I would love to hear a little bit about that. You know, the journey, it's, it's amazing that sometimes you think you're buried with the weight of a particular incident. In fact, you're planted uh, and the fruit, fruits of your harvest would help others. And mm-hmm. I felt that way uh, about four years ago when I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I was out of the country at the time. And when I returned to the city because I was having pains in my stomach, I thought it was colon cancer. It later turned out after I did a check of my colon in, in my stomach, it turned out that I had an ulcer. Uh, but the doctor, when I came out of anesthesia, and he looked at my chart and my blood test. He stated, Eric, your real problem is not the ulcer, it's your diabetes. Hmm. You know, you are, you are, I, he, he actually stated, I don't know how you're not in a coma right now. Your numbers are too high. You had a coma level. And so um, I, was, I lost my sight in my left eye at the time, and I was losing to my right at, as well. And I was having permanent nerve damage in my hands and feet uh, that they say could eventually lead to amputation and permanent blindness because diabetes is the number one cause of blindness and non-trauma amputation. And so the doctors basically told me they had to put me on insulin and all sorts of drugs for everything, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, my ulcer, my vision loss, my diabetes, they say insulin right away. And instead of doing that, I decided to just do a search of my own. And you know what's amazing, and I always reflect on this, that every pamphlet that they handed me and all of the doctors that I saw in that period of time, all the pamphlets and information and brochures said of uh, living with diabetes. Hmm. But when I went to the computer, I didn't type in living with diabetes. <laughs> I typed in reversing diabetes. Right. That one word was the difference between my search. And I, I came in contact with great doctors, Dr. Esselton, Dr. Bonner, Dr. Gregor. I started reading their material. I flew to Ohio to see Dr. Esselton. And he told me, you know, go to, go to a whole food plant-based diet. And I remember him telling me that uh, you know, the two food I had to stop eating. And I was saying, what's wrong with this nut? I'm losing my sight. And he's telling me to stop eating chicken, you know. <laughs> but he was right. Yeah. And three three weeks after going to a whole food plant-based diet, my vision returned. Wow. And three months later, my diabetes went in remission. My nerve damage went away. My cholesterol normalized. And the ulcer that sent me to the doctor in the first place went away. No medicine. Only food. Hmm. I mean, that's a that's an amazing story, and and you know, and, and it's one that I know you share quite a bit. Um, you know, have you seen that to be effective? Uh, that your anecdotal and personal experience has helped others in Brooklyn to turn their diabetes around. 
Uh, yes, for two reasons. Um, one, because uh, my 80-year-old mother followed me, and after being diabetic for 15 years, uh, she uh, was able to go whole food plant-based. And two months after, uh, she was off her insulin, wow. and she was on insulin for seven years. Huh. And that's a real story. Yeah. And the and the second is because even a credible message must have a credible messenger. And people have watched me and my advocacy around effective policing and non-abusive policing. They've, they have witnessed for a long time. And for me to uh, give a personal account of a very dark moment um, in my life, in a very scary moment, people were able to say in, in a real way, hey, we've been duped into believing healthy eating is a white thing. Mm. Um, Plant-based is a white thing. And so when I, when I talk about it, people are starting to see that healthy is not ethnicity. It's about, the, it's a human thing. And it has allowed me to really start changing the conversations with people and my senior centers, my churches. And it was so important uh, that we have this kind of this kind of conversation. Yeah, I think I think one of the I think, you know, I think you're right. I think there has been, uh, you know, certainly in, you know, in my childhood, I remember very well, there was a period of time and I mean, I'm white, I, you know, I grew up in around New York City. And my mom went macrobiotic, which was like a very hot thing, right in like the early 80s. <laughs> and it was very white. And it was about these white people finding things from the east and, re you know, finding swamis and, and gurus and all this stuff. But it also a lot of it was kind of bland. And so I feel like there definitely, you know, had been a sense or is maybe a sense that, oh, well, I wouldn't want to be a vegetarian because the food is boring, right? It doesn't taste right. as good <laughs> as a cheeseburger or as ribs or as, you know, whatever else. And it took a long time, even for me, I mean, I'm in the food industry to kind of wake up to the idea that, oh, well, that's not really true, right? You look at like, Indian cooking, and most of it is vegetarian, and that's where all the spices used to come from historically, right? I mean, like, there's tons of incredible flavor there. It just wasn't in that macrobiotic stuff that all the white people were eating in the early 80s. <laughs> and I love that because, and that's part of the conversation I have with traditional Caribbean Southerners, uh, folks who are really holding on to the traditional food that they're eating uh, because they believe that, hey, if you're going to go plant-based, you're going to walk around with some kale in your pocket. <laughs> you know, we ha I have a whole conversation around the power of spices. People don't like chicken because it's chicken. They like it because of the spices you right. put on top of it. <laughs> you know, that that is what we are yearning for. Yep. You're yearning for the various tastes that come from the spices. And so we do a whole program where we show people the power of spices. Because what blew my mind through this my plant-based journey, and I, I take I took a spice a week and studied the origin, studied what you use it on, what foods is good to use it on, what are the powers of it. And as I started to go through the spices, I, I was blown away to find out that the spices we consume are more powerful than many of the foods we eat. Right. Sure. You know, the turmeric, the 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 uh, cumin, yep. uh, cinnamon, garlic, onion. 
And so I, we're showing people how to incorporate spices into their meals and how to get the taste they're looking for. Yep. You know, you could make a mean veggie burger um, and with the right spice and um, with the right mixture of sauce, and you will have yourself a great meal. I make a cheese uh, out of chickpeas and spices, and and uh, it just it's unbelievable how good it is. You can't tell the difference between American cheese and the chickpeas cheese, and it's and it's far more healthy uh, than a uh, a dairy product. Well, I I want that recipe. I mean, it does all come back <laughs> around to education. I mean, you know, my wife and I, my wife now really is is at the head of it. Uh, you know, runs the Brooklyn Kitchen, which is a cooking school uh, based in Industry mm-hmm. City, and they've gone yes, love it all online <laughs> now. Uh, obviously, because of the current, you know, the current I- impossibility of meeting in person, especially with strangers to all cook food together, which is such mm-hmm. a crazy thing because that commensality and that relationship to others, I think, is so important. But now that's happening as much as possible kind of over the computer. But I love the idea of focusing on a spice and that being what it's about, because I think you're right. I think people's eyes will be opened and their you know their minds will be blown wide open by understanding what they can do with spice and you're right chicken is you know kind of boring by itself to be honest right like you know and so it's really about the spices so you might as well you know and you can put those things on on stuff that is in fact more delicious like beans uh like mushrooms stuff that in fact has more flavor right no so true and and in fact, your wife has a, an amazing location. I remember visiting visiting the school. Uh, I would love for the two of us to do sort of this meal online, Instagram oh, yeah. line live. I would love to do that. We've been doing a little um, uh, different meals here at Borough Hall, showing people how easy it is uh, to make a healthy meal. And I would love to partner with her one day and do that. So I'm going to reach out to her. Awesome. Uh, but you. But you 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 are so right, and we do a plant-based uh, vegan meetup at uh, Borough Hall every three months, and showing people how to cook, how to do different meals, um, how to shop, what to look for. Because you know you often hear people say that it's too expensive. I can't find it. No, you can go right into your neighborhood bodega. find some dry lentils, some dry beans, and that can feed feed a family uh, for an entire week. Make uh, lentil stew, uh, seven bean salads. You can make a vegan burger. Uh, There's so much you can do um, with those dry beans, high source of protein, very healthy healthy for you, Uh, even oatmeal. You know, who the heck said oatmeal is only for breakfast? (laughs) I have some of my best meals, <laughs> you know. But you, but I, I have a, I have a stew I make with oatmeal, lentils, and um, kidney beans with a bunch of uh, kale and spinach. I, I, I mean, it is something to die for. So it's just really thinking outside the box and changing our thoughts and our relationship with food. Absolutely. So I wanted to bring up, um, you know, there's been a lot of coverage lately of uh, the activities of the NYPD, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in different neighborhoods and the different approach that they've taken. And I have an incredible amount of respect for our first responders of all varieties. I mean, especially police officers. And it is a tense time for everybody. And so I wanted to commend you about the video that you put out um, about 
the need for reculturing in the city and the police department. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts kind of on how do we move forward from being in a point where we have people who, uh, you know, are afraid of the police and we have, you know, obviously the images that are showing up and being widespread on social media are only small snippets of the things that are happening in the city between citizens and police. But I would love to just hear your thoughts of how do we approach reculturing our relationship across the entire city with the police. And, and, and that's what it's about. It's about reculturing. And we've made great strides over the years in really doing away with the damage that I fought against when I was the police officer. I actually testified in federal court about ending stop and frisk yep. uh, in the city. Uh, and it's, it's so important that we continue to uh, build those relationships. COVID-19 was threatening uh, the relationships that we have established by having police conduct enforcement for a non-public safety issue. This is a public health issue. It was not about police enforcement. It was about really reculturing, the term that I use often. How do we change the culture, the norm? I'm at events sometimes with some very smart, dedicated people. And the number of times I have to tell them, stand six feet apart is unbelievable. So if I have to do this with smart, intelligent people of, you know, who are knowledgeable on health and on um, politics, imagine the everyday person who's, who's really just trying to figure this out. So we really needed to change that dynamic. I'm glad the mayor agreed with me. He changed the course. He's using uh, credible messengers who are a part of religious groups, part of the civic association, block association, et cetera. It's a great thing we're doing. And, and what the role, here's a good time to use of the police to build a good relationship. Right. How about cops just hand out masks? Right. Have them just, you know, stop people and say, listen, I want you to be safe. Here's the mask. Yeah. Now, are we going to have one or two that's going to use profanity and say, you know, the hell with you? Yes. Yes, we are. You know what? So what? Yeah, <laughs> let's just let's just keep moving. It's, let the block association president deal with that person. Right. That is what we wanted to do. And I think that allows us to continue the progress of building a good symbiotic relationship with the police and the communities they serve. Yeah. And I, and I think we're on the, I think we're on the road to that. And I hope that we see that continue. Yes. So good. So, so true. So I have so a new true. podcast that I'm currently producing for kids and I would love to also use your voice in that one. Um, can you love tell it. me what do you, what do you like to have for lunch? Uh, a combination of things. And they're going to love this. I, I In the middle of the day, I do a nice, uh, what I call a frozen dessert. I, t I take a table, large tablespoon of peanut butter, of frozen bananas, some blue or blackberries, berries, and uh, some uh, cacao powder. And I put it in my neutral uh, bullet and blend it up. And if you can tell me it's not ice cream, I'll give you a hundred bucks. 
It is the bomb. <laughs> and it's a good pick-me-up. And it's very nutri nutritional. And mothers won't feel guilty because everything in it is healthy for their children. And then every once in a while, I'll throw in some walnuts um, with a few dates, chop them up. And it just gives this real good boost. And it's amazing. Oh, it sounds so good. I can't wait to have it. <laughs> Uh, well, Eric, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Is there anything else? Do you have any other messages that you wanted to share on this platform? Uh, no, no more than uh, we're great city, and we are a uh, at an opportunity to just rebuild. And no matter how fearful it may be, uh, just lean into the discomfort, yeah. and let's be there for each other, and we'll be all right. Well, thank you, uh, Borough President, for being there for Brooklyn, and uh, Brooklyn will always be there for you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow BP Adams at BP Eric Adams on Instagram, and if you live in Brooklyn, you'll probably see him around. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows like Time for Lunch, at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.